This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by the new Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 Sport Bike Tire and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Renthal Street. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Catalan round of World SBK. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie on the show today. And Gordon, we're recording this. We're a little bit late. Obviously, in the triple header, it's been a bit of a hectic couple of days. So we're actually recording this Thursday in the media center in Jerez. So we're pretty much straight into the next weekend of action in World SBK. But uh, Catalonia was a really interesting weekend. Oh, it was great. Another great one. Um, three different winners. And... Just a, a, a totally interesting weekend all round. The same issues for some people coming through. Um, and then a bit of resurgence from others. Um, it was good to see Ronaldo back on the top of the box again. Um, it was it was one of those weekends that are you're going to remember at the end of the year. Um, especially after Magnicure when we had all that controversy and stuff. And we ended up with a weekend as far as the rider relations and all that stuff went off relatively well in most aspects. And it seems that, that all that stuff that happened before was kind of forgotten and we reset again. And we left another round with nothing in it. We've got a point in it. Yeah, point in the championship standings between Jonathan Ray and Toprak Razgadioglu. And this is another weekend, Gordo, where we were able to see just how complete a package Toprak is now. One of the big question marks coming into this season was could he qualify well? He's qualified in the front row more often than not this year. He's been able to now answer the questions about wet weather riding. He was able to lead the race and pull a, pull a gap at the front of the field before a technical issue. So there's two of the big question marks Top Rack's been able to answer over the course of this year. Yeah, I mean, he never won a race. He was going to before he had his uh, technical issue. Um, but he's, he is such a rounded rider now. He's got his own style. But between him and the team and the bike, that style is now transferring and working everywhere. That is a, a quite... Uh, amazing thing considering it was quite obviously tracks that the Yamaha didn't work on as recently as last year um, it just didn't work as well or well enough to win and Toprak's obviously grown a lot as a rider his consistency his ability to um, keep it together for all those laps without ride, ride with his same freestyle without actually any it doesn't look as if he's going to fall off he, he rides so loosely but he just doesn't look like he's going to crash um his great misfortune was obviously to lose a race through no fault of his own just because the the his bike went wrong, which is such an unusual event nowadays for the top teams and the top riders to have a bike that just quits on them completely. It doesn't... Maybe I'm missing something, but I don't think it happens that often anymore. And I'm sure you can hear it in the background, the wind whistling around the Hareth Media Centre, so be interesting to see if conditions come into play this weekend as well. We've had thunderstorms actually since we arrived here, and uh, it's not been anything near what we would have expected for uh, the Andalusian weather. A bit different compared to last year when we had the best part of 50 degrees here in uh, southern Spain. So this is going to be another test for everyone. And Gordo, you mentioned there about the technical issue for Yamaha. And uh, it, was, it was a tough one for the team to take. But it seems to be a real bitter one for Toprak, especially. Because when you went down to talk to the team afterwards, they all said the same thing. We've proven that in all conditions we're going to be there this year. I've never seen a team so excited, despite a technical problem, as Yamaha were after what happened to Toprak. Yeah, I think they know that the, this is their chance. Um, even last year, it wasn't. It didn't seem that Yamaha were, were were able to win when you had the competition that you had against it. 
Um, and this year, Yamaha's right up there as a, possibly the choice, the biker choice to be on. Um, they've clearly matured in every level as a team, as a top rack, as a rider. They're a unit now, completely. I mean, obviously, they've been working well for a while, but there is no gaps. There is no uh, spaces left in the Yamaha thing. And that breeds a kind of camaraderie and a togetherness that to bounce back from something like that. And obviously, that's what they did. You know, they, they got over that. The, the big shame for me for Yamaha was the fact that it had to happen on the day when they had their beautiful white and red livery to celebrate the 60th Grand Prix anniversary, etc. You just kind of somewhere in the back of your head every time somebody does something like that there's a bit of a worry that something's gonna gonna happen and that I, that's that i was you know i think you'd probably be a half a hard hard person to not see that it, if it had to happen in a race why that one um but yeah they, they bounced back from it really well yeah far from ideal for yamaha was in the ball door as well they had the same livery and no success in that for the art team this weekend well last weekend in catalonia we saw obviously garrett Gerloff crashed on the sighting lap Toprak had a technical problem. Locatelli had probably the worst race he's had in a long time as well in the wet conditions. So this was just one of those things where you look at it and you say, one-off liveries, they, they can look great. They don't tend to bring an awful lot of good luck. And Yamaha definitely could have done with a bit of luck last time out in Catalonia. And that's the thing. It generally was just a bit of luck. You know, someone having a, a crash in wet conditions, you can't you can't engineer that in or out. It's, it just happens sometimes. Um, but yeah, bad luck was that was bad luck. I, I can't think there was anything that, um, from what I've spoken to people about since then, it's one of those things that just happens every now and again. Electrical component just went wrong. Electrical thing that that they're so complicated um, just didn't do its job to the end of the race. That's it. Let's look at the race weekend as a whole then as well because I think the Super Bowl race was really interesting. We obviously saw Jonathan Ray and Top Rack going at it absolutely with everything they had at the start of that Super Bowl race straight off the line they were banging bars at one another and then in a five lap duration I, th- I think especially for the first two laps it didn't look like they thought that there was anyone else in the race this was just I'm beating you and it was a straight up fight between them gloves were off Ray was able to come out on top but I thought probably the most interesting thing was Top Rack's reaction to the Super Bowl race they come across the line and he could have been forgiven for being a bit upset at some of the overtaken moves that had taken place. It was a bit of an aggressive race between both of them. And instead of this, he looks across to Johnny, gives him a big thumbs up, comes into Park Fermi, there's a massive smile on his face. And you've got to look at it. If you're Jonathan Ray, you've got to be there thinking, how the hell can I get under this guy's skin? How am I going to be able to beat Top Rack this year? Yeah, he's. Uh, I spoke to Top Rack earlier today, actually, and I said to him, you've not changed since he came here. He's very laid back, very calm guy. Obviously, he's a mega star now, but he hates it. He hates the idea that people think he's a star. He just wants people to think of him as top rack. He's, his attitude is there. He's matured as a rider, as we said. He's now a much better rider than he's been. Uh, he's got all the tools to handle things, but also mentally. I think that natural kind of... All him and all these, the other Turkish riders and Keenan Safoglu do is get on the testing track and bash lumps out of each other. So that's his normal. What we see on TV is, oh, wow, oh, is his normal. That's his day-to-day thing. Okay, they're doing it on 300cc bikes, they're not doing it on thousands. But, yeah, Johnny's got a problem with top rack. Is it, as you say, how do you get under his skin? How do you upset him? You kind of almost can't. I mean, it, it, it's he's just laid back big guy who, everybody says, oh, I'll take it one race at a time. That is what he does. He, he just that's the way he thinks that's the way he goes about things and currently it's good enough to be leaving at one point in the championship and more importantly 
Where would he be if he hadn't been dropping points this year? He's dropped a few. Well, you say he's dropped a few. Obviously, Aston clashed with Gurloff, the technical problem in Catalonia. It's pretty hard to think of anywhere else where he's no, dropped he, the ball he, and made He's touched the green twice and lost positions two times. Now, that's a controversy in Magna Cure, but he did it in Aston as well, went second to third, I think, in one race. So there's, what, four points? He's, he's, he's five points he's dropped. Four points. Uh, also, super or pole Super Pole race. So a, a, hand, a couple of points is still points. Um, so, you're, you know, it, there's a couple of things he's dropped, but the big one was the potential 25 for that probable win last weekend. Nothing to do with him. But even the, the touching the green thing, well, I mean, okay, it's the, the, he's at the end of a race, it's on the limit, it's everything else. But it's his lack of mistakes, considering the way, especially considering the way his riding style is and his approach is, is it looks loose, but it isn't. It's just that's his normal. It's not Johnny. Johnny it can ride a bike in any condition, any way he wants. He can ride a powerful bike, a, a smoother bike. He, he can ride anything. But... Top rack style is transferring to his bike now and it's not wearing the tyres out. It's not causing them extra problems compared to the other riders. Um, and he's just breezing through it all. It's as if he's out for a Sunday ride. Okay, a slightly crazy Sunday ride. But to him, he just comes in, as you say, smiling. He's a, that's a fierce thing to try and take on. And you can see that it's making the Kawasaki have to go in places it doesn't want to go, it can't go anymore. Johnny's having to ride and override, maybe. So, yeah. How do you get under the skin of top right? Probably don't. Obviously, Gordo, your Sunday ride. Let's look at your typical Sunday ride with uh, all of the ex-bike racers in Scotland. That would be a bit like going out with top rack. No, no, that's that. We're all mature gentlemen who are going at a very steady pace. I can say that with... I heard it was a bit too steady of a pace at times, Gordo. Yeah, we can be a bit too steady sometimes. Especially me, fun enough. But that's what happens. What can you say? No, it, it's um. I I think the, this year's championship is exactly what we need. It's a proper competition between two people, two and a half, because Scott keeps disappearing and coming back, disappearing and coming back. Reading is not out of it. He, he, in theory, he is, but he's still there. Um, he's still winning when you don't expect him to, and losing when you don't expect him to, and doing all those things in between. You've got real characters in this year's championship. You've got real on-track characters. They've all got their own way of going about things and their own foibles. Um, even the metronomic winning machine of Johnny's been upset this year. And that's not just because of his bike or w- the relative performance of the other bikes. It's because of the other riders. He's finding riders now that can beat him every chance they get. And that hasn't always happened except for that first, what, 45% of a season. Um, two years ago when the Ducati turned up with a new bike and just blew everybody into the weeds. For a while, Johnny ended up being champion. This year, I mean, they are their I mean, I'll ask a question back to you, Steve. Do you think we're going to go all the way in this championship? Because at the moment, I think we are. That's some stupid terms. I think we'll go to the last round, but I think we're at the stage where, and we have been for a long time, where if you're putting your money on the table, you're not putting it on Jonathan. You know, and... I'd, I'd say in the long term you would, but that's based on six years' experience. However... The cooler head right now, and the person who seems to be riding within an, uh, you know, a smaller window of the possible window, is Top Rack. So in that circumstance, yes, but we are still at the stage of race after race. We're near the end of the season now. We're not there. Maybe in the last round, the cool head, the uh, race by race approach, is going to suddenly harden into someone. Oh, right, I could win this world championship. 
Well, let's look at it. We're, we're here in Harath, and uh, like I said, you know, it's windy here in Harath. I'm sure that you can still hear that in the background here in the media centre, so apologise for, uh, for the audio on this pod. But uh, Gordo, we have it this weekend where we're at a track where the Yamaha does work really well. Obviously, the Kawasaki works well here too, but it's going to be hot. Last year, whenever we raced here, that didn't really work out great for Jonathan on the Sunday. Alex Lowe struggled as well on the Sunday here. It was a, a big issue for Kawasaki in the past whenever we got really hot conditions. Jerez should suit the Yamaha, should suit Toprak. We go to Portimao next, and that's the pivotal one because Jonathan Ray is effectively unbeatable at Portimao in recent years. If Toprak's able to take points off from there, that's the real signal of a change in the guard. And then we go to Argentina and San Juan, where the Yamaha should work really well around there. You know, it, the longer straight's going to help them. We'll wait and see what happens in Indonesia. But I don't know. I just look at it right now and say that the momentum is going top racks, top racks way. He's not making mistakes. Jonathan's made a lot of mistakes this year because he's had to. He's had to push so hard. His two, his two mistakes in races cost him with crashes. He had massive saves in Donington, Mizano, a few other places. So I think right now, if I was putting... I'd tell you what, Gordo, you owe me a fiver. I do. And uh, I know that you, you don't want to give it back to me. So we'll just put that fiver on the table and say, I'm going to go with top rack for the championship. Uh, well, okay, now that you've made it public, I will have to give you that fiver back. I, there's no denying I've done it anymore. I, I, I can't believe that. I can't deny it anymore. Um, Look, it was a tenner, actually, Gordon. It was a tenner, and that's why you, you've said it now. I thought, I've got away with saving a fiver there. You've actually made it the actual tenner it was. Um, net fiver. Did I not give you five back yet? No, you didn't give me anything ah, back okay. yet. I'm sure you did. Anyway, uh, yeah, look, if you're looking at it from where we are now and where we'll be at the end of the season, I kind of agree with you that the momentum is certainly behind Top Rack and the fact that even although these things have happened to him, being taken out, losing a race with the, the electrical problem, losing a couple of uh, points on the green, ultimately, he's still ahead. He's still ahead. And if those things hadn't happened, if, 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 the worst world in racing, then it would be he would be much further away um, yes you could say that and I'm not denying that and maybe this is going to be top racks year. maybe it's just too difficult for Ray and his crew and the way things are under Kawasaki but I wouldn't I, I don't think we're going to have a, a pivotal weekend unless top rack really brings it when he goes to Portimao uh, I'd, I'd say that unless Portimao, unless Top Rack really makes a go of it that weekend, it'll, that'll be the pivotal weekend here. It could go either way. Portimao should be Jonathan's. So if Jonathan doesn't leave with a rake of points from there over Top Rack, then we're in a bit of bother. We're going to just take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast. When we come back after, we're going to talk about Ducati. But just before we do, Gordon, I'm going to ask you one question because obviously one of the big things that we've talked about in the pod through the course of this year uh, the homologation for Kawasaki and the problems that they had earlier in the year getting the engine re-homologated I would have to say that the biggest issue we've seen and we saw it all the way through this year is the limitations with the Kawasaki come in a lot, lot of the cases because it's a very old philosophy on their bike they haven't really changed the geometry and a lot of the bike over the course of the last 10 years whereas a lot of other manufacturers have come in and made significant changes this year, it looked like a big change for Kawasaki because they brought in new fairings, new aero, but the bike wasn't actually significantly changed. That's one of the reasons why the FIM, when they were looking at the engine upgrades, looked at it and said, this isn't a big enough upgrade to warrant 
a new homologation. This year with Ray, though, I think we've seen a pretty clear case that Kawasaki needs to make a big step because everyone else has caught up. And Jonathan Ray, we've said it a few times in the past, he's the margin for error for Kawasaki. And even with Jonathan Ray, the best superbike rider we've ever seen, it's still not quite enough at certain times. Yeah, um, and I think they know that, and I think that's why they made a, a, a different, slightly different engine and got them some revs back again. Um, not only for top power, revs allow you to have better spacing of the gears. Jonathan's complained a lot through the year about coming out of corners, he's never in the right gear. It's in certain corners at certain tracks. Therefore, you're at a disadvantage coming out of there. Therefore, you have to try and make it up somewhere else. You can't overtake people as easily. You don't have revs at the top. Um, but ultimately, they th- Kawasaki probably thought they had done enough, but what someone hadn't done, a group of people hadn't done, they either hadn't read the rules right or they hadn't interpreted them properly. They hadn't had an earlier enough interpretation back to see if what they thought was a new engine was going to be. Maybe they needed to be more consultative at the earlier stages. I don't know that. And obviously, it's not a great situation they're in. They're not going to... Uh, volunteer a lot of information on that but there was a mistake made that did not allow them to run the revs that they had tested with all winter now winter testing has got limited use because the tracks are colder and you can always go fast lap times when you get to the height of summer especially this season when we've got another compressed summer season more than racing in the springtime we've raced through the summer hotter conditions you touched on that earlier um Kamasaki probably with 500 revs would probably be enough for Johnny to be able to do what Johnny does. Um, the other argument is, well, isn't that better that we've got, you know, Johnny slightly toiling if you're a neutral, if you're someone watching on TV, that, well, that's made it a much more compelling championship. Personally, I think we should have fair racing and the best rider wins. It's a world championship. It's not a club race. It's not a pure entertainment. This is a world championship where people spend millions of pounds a year. So, And, and Gordon, one of the things as well, just before we take that break, that I always find interesting with the rules for World SBK is that in the superbike class, what you have as your inherent bike, whether there's flaws on the road bike or not, that is what has to be your race bike. It's not like in the Supersport 300 class or what we're going to see in the Supersport class next year, where we're going to have balancing rules between different manufacturers, different bikes, different engine types. In the superbike class, yeah, you can lose a few revs here and there, but it's not about balancing it out to make it where everyone's equally competitive. It's just almost to curtail you if you've got a significant advantage. And that's what we saw with Ducati in the past where they lost revs, Kawasaki lost revs. But it is a case of that's there just to, to draw you back rather than to make it where, you know, everyone's competitive. Because at the end of the day, we can see with Honda and BMW that it's not a, a class of parity. Uh, no, but it, there's nothing in those bikes that won't let them get to uh, it, depending on which of the two Honda riders you talk to. Um, there's nothing in the, inherent in those bikes that's stopping them being competitive now. What they don't have is the experience with those bikes, the ability, as you say, to just change things because they want to. Um, there are all sorts of regulations to limit this class, but as you say, it is designed to stop people running away with it as they have in the past. Um, the problem now is that maybe they need to start thinking about a little bit more of well these guys aren't competitive maybe we need to give them something extra right now to bring them up there and without going into as you say we're coming towards a break but there's been a a big philosophical battle in this championship in the past that ended up being won by performance equalisation 
more or less whatever you really need to stay competitive you can kind of have we'll find a way of getting that in the rule book and there's now the way that Donna introduced which is the rule book is God and we will follow the rules and we will adjust the rules so that everybody has an equal opportunity to be competitive the trouble is a lot of the rules that they've brought in since then are stopping people making development on their bikes either by lack of testing uh, you haven't reached your, your uh, concession part level limit yet. You've got maximum revs, which may or may not be fair on this manufacturer versus that manufacturer. You've got bikes which are older or newer. Ironically, the, tr- the bikes that are struggling now are the oldest, arguably the oldest design, the Kawasaki, and two of the newer designs, especially the Honda. That's only two or three years old. So, we, you know, we're, we're at a stage of, to me, philosophically, the championship needs to decide... Do we go down the route of performance equalisation and say, okay, let's give more leeway to the Honda and the new bikes to be competitive and the old bikes to stay competitive? Or do we wait to get all five together, as we surely will do soon, if, I would imagine, Kawasaki make a new one or a new engine homologation that does meet enough criteria and the BMW and the Honda just catch up to the great work that's been put in by the other guys? Um, It's great times to see We've got three competitive bikes now, minimum, and... What happened in, uh, I'm sure we'll touch on it later on, what happened in Catalonia with a podium for a different bike? Yeah, we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Rental Street. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, Ducati and their performances in Catalonia. The Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the newest addition to the popular Diablo Rosso family and is specifically designed for sport bike, hyper-naked, and crossover motorcycles. Giving riders a superior level of grip, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 gives precise feedback and control in both wet and dry conditions, raising the benchmark for high-performance sport tires on the road. Available in a wide range of sizes, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the culmination of nearly 20 years of testing and R&D in the factory, on the roads, and on the track with World Superbike. Visit your local dealer or online retailer and pick up a set today. The Paddock Pass podcast presented by Fly Racing and Rental Street. Gordo, we touched on it just before the break. We're going to talk about Ducati, and you mentioned about uh, the uh, the better performance from uh, Honda as well over the course of the Catalan round. This was really encouraging because in Magni Corps, we saw that Ducati really struggled, and then race one, it might have been wet conditions, a 1 2 3 for Ducati. Then we saw on Sunday, Alvaro Bautista able to get a podium in the, in the Super Pole race, run strong in race two as well. It shows that when the ducks are in a row for both of those manufacturers, they're able to get good results. And when the circuits at that weekend in particular suit their bikes and all the riders, then they can get the results. It's the they have more difficulty repeating that than the other manufacturers. Yamaha were a bit like that before you good good Yamaha track, not so good Yamaha track. Ducati it's almost you can't even predict it because we keep thinking it's because of this this temperature or that temperature. It's because of the big rider at this track or a small rider at this track. It's because of the acceleration that they can put in or it's because of the, the, the length of the straight that they're on. We're, we're, we are running out of ideas as to when we know Ducati is going to be competitive. Did anybody really see Michael Rubin Rinaldi winning a race in the weekend there going into it? Probably not. But the Ducati was capable of doing it. Um, why? This is the big question, or sorry, questions for Ducati. They can't seem to predict when they're going to have a good weekend or a bad weekend. So that's their big issue, is repeatability. But the performance is high. The Honda is definitely getting a little bit better, but 
even Bautista himself said it helped on the straight, great big long straight at Catalonia, so he could do all his passing there. So that helped him. He, he, all the bikes he was running about with were basically his bikes faster, especially with a little guy like him on it. And he was the first person to admit that. It was very big of him to do so. He was, and, and it was refreshing to do so. But they're definitely making some progress. And he explained the Honda situation as we've done a lot of little things because they're not allowed to change a lot of big things. But all the little things, you, say, what, you do one, two, three, four, five, not so much difference. You do eight, nine, ten. And oh, all of a sudden, you're finding those tens a second a lap. That seems to be the encouraging thing for Honda based on what they got out of the thing at Barcelona. Here, not a long straight. We'll see how much of the straight was part of that, that result. And more than one result, as you say, for a Honda. But that thing's going the right direction. Maybe, um, and they're going to have a different situation next year, but I would be fascinated to see if they kept both riders, what they would be able to do next year based on the two years they've had of struggling because the bike does seem to be getting to a point whereby now and remember we're talking about parts of a percentage to let them be on the podium they're not 40 seconds back you know they can be 20 if they get it all wrong or the tyre choice wrong but that thing is is a tool it just needs to be sharpened properly well let's look at the riders that are being linked with it obviously Iker Akwona looks almost like a nailed on certainly for that stage we're waiting for an announcement for that for what seems like the last month. But uh, if a rider like Lekwona gets that ride, he's a young rider with two years MotoGP experience, Grand Prix experience in Moto2. Obviously, that's something that's important for Honda with this HRC team. They really just seem to want to have people from the Grand Prix paddock. Lekwona could be an ideal candidate. He's got that experience. He's hungry. And we'll wait and see if he's able to adapt to a superbike. As it is, it's it's one of those things where Honda are battling most often for 8th, ninth, 10th position. Lekwona can come in and probably get them to, to that level as well anyway. So I think that could be quite an interesting sign and if it's confirmed and then you wait and see whether or not it's the likes of Xavi Vieira that's being talked about or, or someone else to come in for the second seat. I think um, taking people from Grand Prix to this paddock now with the level it is, is a gamble. It's a flat out gamble, and it might be a gamble they win. I, I, I might, we might at the end of next year, if that's what happens, the riders we're talking about turn up, then and they end up being the winning riders or, or truly competitive or whatever, <laughs> or get results that the previous riders couldn't get. Then it was a it was a completely justified gamble. But I think that's a gamble. I don't see that as a, a nailed on um, good choice to bring more Grand Prix guys over to Superbike. Um, because it's it's difficult and it's and it's different. This is a different class, completely from MotoGP. It, uh, any MotoGP class, this is just different. Well, let's look at it though, Gordo. Whenever you've got Leon Haslam leave, potentially leaving that seat, thirty-eight years old, Alvaro Bautista has left. So, who do you put in that bike? So, when you look at the Supersport class, yeah, there's a few young riders in that. The likes of Manuel Gonzalez looks really impressive. But you've got Dominic Aguilar leading the championship, a guy with, let, let's be honest, he's a Grand Prix rider as well. So there you go. There's a rider from the Grand Prix paddock, Steve Nodendal, second in that championship and a rider that spent most of his career racing in the European championship. You know, Jules Cluzel has always been a front runner in the super sport class. Jules has got effectively one leg. He's had so many bad injuries. He has to shift gear with his right foot now. When you look at other riders in the super sport class, 
Chan Onshu, Philip Ertl, they've both been able to make a good step in the super sport class. Ertl's done a really good job. But has he done enough where you think, yeah, let's put him on, on a super bike and, and, and think, yeah, he's going to be a rider that's going to make that big difference. I think that's, that there's not that many riders you can bring through onto that package. Um, yes, but if you want to continue the job of development and go for race wins, then you bring in a, a younger rider from Grand Prix, fine. I'm talking about the two. Keeping one of the established guys there, and there are established guys in this paddock who don't have rides for next year. There's at least two names I can think of that aren't guaranteed to have races next uh, a proper seat for next year. Um, you could put either of them on if that, and that's your development wing. Unless you create a development team and start doing testing and so on, but that's complicated again in Superbike. Well, so, even if you were to look at that, like obviously Tom Sykes is one of those riders you're thinking of. And Tom is a rider that has a lot of experience, clearly. Tom's also got the most unique riding style in the paddock. Is that the development path that you want to take things down? If, you, if you've got a bike that's got a lot of power at the top end, then yes. Because the problem is that the bike is not easy to ride because it's got power packed up to the top. It's got a very big bore, which means that the engine revs up and revs down quite quickly. These are the, the, the lands that Tom Sykes inhabits. This is the way he likes to ride the motorbike, which is why his style is so unique. Get it in, get it down, get it up and get it powered out. Hard braking, etc. That is an extreme way of riding, but if you can get the bike to, be, to behave itself in that situation then it will behave itself in a smoother situation. If you get another rider who's got a different riding style, you then have to work in two different areas which will help to develop the bike further. I always think one experienced rider and one young rider. One guy who doesn't know you can't do that and one guy who might have a chance of knowing why it's not doing that and, in, and help it improve that way. But as I say, if, you, if, if they bring in two young riders from MotoGP, and they start winning races and everything else, then they, they, they were right and everybody else was wrong. But it's it's quite a bold move, I think, for a, a project that hasn't actually achieved any of the real goals it's set out to achieve. Yeah, the one thing I would say is that like the big thing with Honda is that they've gone down the Grand Prix route over the last few years. And the problem with that is they've gone down the Grand Prix route inside the pit box where everyone in that garage came from Moto2 or Moto3 pretty much. Yes. And they gave up an awful lot of experienced heads that would have known Superbikes, Pirelli tyres, the calendar, the rules, all these things. And that's where their biggest issue is. Like, at the end of the day, when you look at Honda as a whole, you can't really pin too much blame on the riders. Bautista should have won the 2019 World Championship. Haslam's won a lot of races, a lot of podiums, a lot of success. British champion only a few years ago as well. So... The, the blame, if there's blame to be thrown around, it's quite difficult to throw it at the rider's feet. It's, yes, I mean, you would, yes. Those guys are there because of the quality that they've demonstrated. Um, th those guys are, are, are experienced and winning riders. Um, ultimately, that's why I think one of them or, or an experienced rider should stay there and bring in a new talent that, as you say, pushes the envelope in a different way. I think fundamentally there's, there's obviously things not quite right with the Honda in this paddock and maybe the problem is that they never actually developed it around Pirelli tyres. Maybe that bike was developed around a different tyre brand. That's what I would imagine would ha has happened at the very beginning. 
But if you want to win here, you have to start thinking, well, it's going to run on Pirellis because we're a long-term Pirelli user and they're very different from everybody else's race tyres, all of which are much stiffer. Well, let's look at a manufacturer then that did develop their bike with a full year on track, all obviously focused on Pirelli development, Ducati. There in Catalonia, we saw one, two, three, the first time in almost 10 years where Ducati's been able to do that. We saw Rinaldi then win on Sunday as well. I thought Redding's performance in the wet was really impressive. He came back through the field and it was a, it was a proper ride where it was clearly just, he was thinking, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going. I'm not accepting anything less. And he was able to win the race. Great to watch. Fantastic the, to watch. The Super Pole race, obviously he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, gets pushed out wide, has to start race two down the field. But he's able to recover quite well in race two. You know, this was this was a, a good weekend by Scott Redding, but a great weekend for Ducati. Yeah, I mean, if you're sitting at home in Bologna watching the results coming in, you'd be thinking, "Wow, you know how did, how did we do that?" But that's great that we managed to do that. Um, it wasn't expected. I don't think it wasn't expected that we were going to be that good. Obviously, a wet race is a wet race. But what also threw that up to me is, I think the Ducati thing there is it shows how good when it works a Ducati is even for a privateer and I know it was wet and everything else but the Ducati privateers can still do a number here if, they, if they've if they got the right people in the box um, they can still be competitive it wasn't that long ago with the V-Twin that Barney were being on the podium almost regularly on the V-Twin era the way the rules are now the best thing about the rules in this championship now are is that you can have a bike which is pretty blooming near nearer the factory bikes than than probably any time in the history of this championship yeah there's some more complications because the electronics you need to have a good person in your team to deal with that side of things but you get the electronics from the manufacturer you say basically run run about these settings will be fine um, Ducati is the best bike here when it works well still it's the fastest bike here when it works still it just doesn't work and it certainly doesn't work when you think it's gonna um, and does work when you, I think that's more of an example in Barcelona, it works when you weren't expecting it to um, and that adds a great deal of spice to the championship but it must be infuriating for the teams that are running it when they, and even the factory team, they just don't know what they're going to get but I think the best thing about that is the privateer Ducatis are obviously capable of getting podium results every week, like the satellite Yamaha can do or has done um, and probably will be able to do again that is a big success for this championship. The people in charge of the rules, the people who thought of this in the first place should be applauded for it. Because ultimately, look at Gerloff. You know, Bassani got on a podium, grinning his head off, the, the happiest day of his life. You know, these things are what we used to have on a regular basis in World Superbike. And not for, you know, we've had it occasionally. To me, that's a, a process that as long as it's the right rider in the right circumstances, you could have every weekend. Well, let's look at Bassani as well. Obviously, we saw on the podium for the first time in his World SBK career. First time he's actually been on the podium in this paddock at all. He obviously raced in the Supersport class in the past. I think his best result was the top five finish. So Bassani in Catalonia in the wet conditions really excelled. And it's easy to look at it and just say, oh, it was wet. You know, that's why he went well. But Bassani's done a great job this year. You know, there's been times, Mizano in particular, he was really fast and consistent. I think he's surprised a lot of people what he's been able to do this year. Did he have a good result in Most as well? I've got a vision of him sitting yeah. in the top six one of the days at Most as well. Yeah, he was he was going well there too. Yeah. He's had a good season where he's been yeah. in those top ten spots from you know most of the rounds. He's It shows what can be done if you're a good rider. And 
all the time I've I've seen that kid racing save is in Superstock 600 and he's been unlucky he's been in teams yes no but all the Italian guys in the background say yeah Bassani's pretty good you know I mean he you know when people tell that to you what, before Top Rack even turned up here Keenan was saying oh I've got a guy in Turkey who's going to be a bit tasty and uh, they didn't say that obviously but the words to that effect um, and look at what we've got in our hands you know a guy that MotoGP wants you know um so yeah, Bassani's a is a good rider, and and this class, this championship, when you've got a good team, you will be able to show that, and that's quite happening because people t- don't think that from outside of this championship, but it's true. You do have to have the right people in the box helping you. You do have to rely on the manufacturer, not try and do your own crazy stuff outside. Gordo, we got a we got a guy from Turkey that's a bit tasty coming in for the Super Sport class this weekend. Who'd have thunk it? Keenan back for one day only. Dear me. Special, special. It, it, it's like, you know, for one night only, he comes back. And Keenan's one of those guys that never wanted to retire. Like Bayless, he just never accepted retirement. He's always thinking that one day he would go back racing. Um, he races with those guys every day when they're training in Turkey. His competitive spirit is, is not being dulled by the years. He's, what, 38, 39? He's a decent age now. That guy, I don't know what he's going to do. He might be nowhere on Friday, Saturday. I think there's absolutely no chance that he's nowhere. Maybe, but well, I, hey, we we thought that about Bayless. We just thought Bayless might come back, but it, you know, it didn't quite work out for Troy. He was fast and, and flashes. Don't get me wrong, but when you're away from actual racing with this level of person on track this often, difficult. But it doesn't matter. Everybody's just grinning, you know, looking forward to seeing him being out on track again. Everybody understands that the guy never stopped being a racer in his head. He's still a racer. He, he lives all the races with his guys. You see him just jumping up and down in his seat when he watches the Turkish guys racing in the various classes that he helps out in. And, you know, he's never stopped being a racer. Not in a million years. So, but it's great to see. He's a great, and he's a great, he's an amazing character. So strong character. Incredible. Well, let's look at a guy you mentioned there. Keenan never wanted to retire. It looks like we're at the end of the line for Chaz Davison, more or less, VK. And Chaz, bad accident in Catalonia. Obviously, hurt his ribs, and uh, he's sitting out this weekend. Loris Baz is going to replace him. But uh, when you look back at Chaz over the last 15 years, he was the British rider 20 years ago, really coming through in the Grand Prix classes, that there was a sense of expectation that he could be something special. Never really worked out for him in the Grand Prix class. Went to America, came back here, won a Supersport World Championship. He's won 30-odd Superbike races, 99 podiums challenge for world championships you've obviously seen him all the way through his career here in the Superbike Paddock Order what's your overriding memory Chaz? I think it was the fact that he had to make at least a couple of comebacks through his career before he got in that factory Ducati ride um, that was the right ride at the right time in the right place for Chaz Chaz could have his career could have stopped at least a couple of times before it did and just because of his iron will and obviously talent when he got the chance but Chaz has had to rebuild his career at least a couple of times. Um, he didn't quite get to that world champion level. He's just been unlucky that he arrived uh, at the time. Without Johnny on the Kawasaki, if Johnny was still on the Honda another couple of three years, maybe Chaz would have had won a world championship. Um, he's obviously not a perfect rider. He's got the certain aspects of it. He doesn't qualify particularly well, which doesn't help. Um but yeah, a battler, absolutely. A guy who demands his bike to be set up properly. Well, that's probably his Grand Prix training coming into it um, because he was on little two strokes at the start of his Grand Prix career. 
he's when you look at the different bikes he's ridden in the different places he's ridden, he's incredibly uh, experienced, considering that everybody understands and recognises that him as a superbike rider. He's ridden so many other things. Um, and let's not forget, he's had good results. He's ridden, as far as I remember, Aprilia, BMW and Ducati here, V20 and NV4, and he's had results in all of them. He hasn't jumped on a bike that he couldn't get to do what he wanted it to do eventually, even if it was difficult with the V twin and then the V four Ducati. But Chaz is an incredibly resilient person. But who's who else has won in the last six years? No one. That six years he had a chance to be world champion in those six years and just came up against the rock that was Ray and Kawasaki. There's nothing anybody can do about that. He shouldn't be <coughs> thought of in a bad way because of that. Yeah, and I think one of the things as well this year obviously this is going to be a year that's going to be remembered for the podium in Estoril, but mostly for disappointment. And I think what's really interesting is that, you know, Top Rack, whenever he was offered the Yamaha MotoGP seat, he was being offered the older spec bike. And he said, I'm a factory rider. Give me the current bike. This year, Chaz left the factory team, went to a satellite team. And I think he was able to then understand the difference between being a factory rider and a satellite rider and when you've been at the front when you've challenged for world championships when you've had to raise yourself to that ultimate level to then be battling it out for eighth ninth tenth position it's such a different different thing and when you get to a stage in your career where you have to just think is it worth it is it worth the hardship just to be able to still still be on the grid to still race and i think Chaz was always going to be a rider that you could understand him making the decision i love to win and that's what Chaz was driven by, as opposed to you get some riders where it's about hanging on to still be part of the paddock, to still travel the world. I don't think Chaz is a rider that ever would have considered that to be one of the big motivating factors for him. Um, Chaz nearly chucked it last year when he lost his factory ride because um, he thought, and he kept saying himself, you can't win the World Championship if you're not on a factory bike. And the only thing that's now motivating Chaz, uh, that's, well, I can't say that, but for me, the only thing that's motivating Chaz would be winning lots of races and challenging again for a World Championship. If you think you realistically don't have a chance to challenge for a World Championship now, you've got the career that Chaz has had underneath him, you've got a young family starting, You and obviously the risks are still there, as is the reason why he's not racing this weekend. Um, he's an intelligent human being, Chaz, and maybe he's going to say, OK, you know what, now is the, the correct time. The Go 11 team, compared to the way it was two years ago, has transformed and that it can get on podiums. It won races with an Aldi. Um, even two years ago, when Eugene was riding for the for that team, it didn't look anything like the, the team the way it is now, which is another good thing about World of Superbike. That team's transformed itself into being a winning team and a podium-capable team. Chaz can leave this class now with his head held high and probably a core deep realisation that it's okay, it's not going to happen for me now. It's time to go. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast, but when we come back, we sat down with Chaz Davis to get his thoughts. Fly Racing believes that our most important obligation is to provide the highest performing products to riders worldwide. Offering both on- and off-road products for every price range, Fly Racing is committed to reshaping expectations. Fly Racing revolutionized the off-road world with the Formula Helmet, featuring Rion technology. Visit flyracing.com and at flyracingusa on Instagram to learn more about the innovation that can keep you protected in 2021. 
It's a, it's a big day for you. Obviously, this is just after you've announced your retirement from World SBK. This has been a, a massive part of your life for the last 10 years. It's been what you've been driven towards. But when you look back over the 10 years before that, you were the young British rider coming through in the Grand Prix classes, the one that had been earmarked as being a real talent. And you didn't really get the breaks early on in your career, took going to America, coming back from that. Then you were able to win a Super Sport World Championship. You've won over 30 Superbike races, nearly 100 podiums. When you look back on your career as a whole, did you meet your, your own targets? Oh, far exceeded them. I didn't, I don't think I've ever been that kid with the, that goes, right, I'm going to win this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to be world champion at that. I've always been like, I've always had the mindset of like, if you can, call this sport your your job then you're already lucky so anything beyond that is is uh, a bonus and yeah it, my career has been probably more varied than, than ideal and more more varied than most but um i felt like there's there's been little opportunities along the way that i've sort of making the best of made the best of and um and that's led me to better opportunities and then got me into position in the world back into the world championship which was yeah obviously then set me up for these last 12 years in this paddock so yeah there's um it's not usual to have such a topsy-turvy career path of jumping between you know, bikes manufacturers championships and that sort of thing but in the end absolutely zero regrets and it's all worked out for a reason and yeah here we are on the day which for me it's both a, a happy and sad day where i'm announcing my retirement from this championship but i feel like the timing is right so let's move on was it a tough decision to make absolutely yeah it's difficult um i think any sports person you I, it's very difficult to let go and to, to let go of and the many things that come with being a world two right rider that can you know, fight for for top results it's that taste of of victory or that smell even if you're you know, having a difficult season this year but I know it only takes a couple of things to go in the right direction and then you're, you're knocking on the door for a podium or a race win and that's that's a difficult thing to actually you know uh, turn a blind eye to or to, to sort of say no enough's enough but on the other hand it's the decision has to come at some point and Although I'm not old by any means, I'm 34, I'd be 35 at the start of next season. There's, um, in the eyes of manufacturers these days, you know, they are looking for young blood and it gets increasingly younger and younger. So to get, to find different opportunities and factory bikes is more difficult and just be realistic to the fact that I've had my opportunities. I've done the best with with them, with what I felt I could do at the times uh, when I've had them. and. And um, hey, everything changes one day, and this is my time to sort of turn the page and and look for something else. I'm excited about a life beyond racing. Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity and things, potential things to turn turn my hand to, but at the same time, no expectations or or thoughts um, on what that could be. Just sort of like enjoy the moment for now and um, disconnect. I think from what's been 25 plus years of of being in this world even though it's not obviously it's not a job for 25 years but since i've been i've been a say professional since starting in grand prix which was when i was 15 so that's 20 years ago and that's i don't care what job you're doing it's a long time to 
to be doing it. So it, I think that that in itself, you need to disconnect from from racing a little bit, just to step back, get perspective, and open your mind up to new things and um, yeah, a different way of thinking. So at the press conference, we had the majority of the superbike riders on the grid all here, and we saw you talk to everyone afterwards. When you look back on, especially the last 10 years, if you think from when you signed for Ducati especially, Ducati had been in the doldrums, they'd struggled, hadn't won a race for a few years. You were key in getting Ducati back to the front of World SBK. And we saw a few years of great battles between yourself and Johnny Ray in the front, challenging for World Championship against each other. You've been teamed up with the likes of Melandri and a host of really good riders to measure yourself against. Like When you look back on the last 10 years, where do you see yourself in terms of stacking up? Well, it's a difficult question to answer that, but yeah, I've, I've always felt like there's always a lot of people that I've looked up to. So I was in the, at the back of the or back of the one two five class when Melandri was dominating in two fifty. So that at that time, when you're in that position, seems so unachievable and so out of reach. You're looking at this guy on the podium when I might have just finished twenty fifth or something. Um, you're looking at the guy on the podium that's doing everything that you want to do and, and is on the factory bike and um, contract and everything like that. Where you know, that felt for a lot of long time, my career felt like that was really unachievable and really far away. So actually, for it to come full circle to get into this paddock with equal opportunities with those those guys, um, big names, you know, the Aggies and Melandries so who were, you know, around in the era when I started in, in GPs, then it's actually when you you feel like you've upped your game over the years and then you, you get to, it's like a, a game where you beat all the, the little bosses and then you get to the big boss at the end and those are the names that I grew up sort of idolizing and then having the opportunity to test myself on an equal playing field with them and not just test but also beat them as well it's immense personal satisfaction because you work work really hard on your game to 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 be better at it and put a lot of work a lot of thought over the years of what i need to do to improve and did absolutely to the best of my abilities um everything that i could do and yeah that those little things like what you mentioned about those type of riders is they're just things along the way that you think well yeah I've actually i can kind of pat myself on the back when you look back at your career as well what's what's your favorite thing about being a professional racer um favorite thing about being it a professional racer is is um it's the personal for me it's it's not anything but the personal satisfaction you get from putting together a race or um, a weekend where it you for me it's like you know that you're riding like, the best you've ever ridden you doing things that shouldn't really be possible but you're getting away with it and you're you're with the bike and your feel with the bike is all is perfect and having and putting together connecting all those dots to put a race together to win it is like that's the feeling that is a drug it's um it's it's nothing that comes with it it's not the 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 money that you get for winning a race or it's not the the people that pat you on the back we're doing that you know it's that for me it's that is the drug that's the the thing that is actually they're going to be the hardest thing for me and um, i i can get a near similar kick by going to a car track and training with a supermoto bike when i feel like i'm riding good and i'm losing the front every corner and losing the rear on the way out but catching it and 
but you're just racing it yourself and testing yourself at that point. It's not against a field of highly um, tuned other brilliant motorcycle racers. It's it's just yourself, and that for me that would be the hardest thing. That's the best thing, and going to be the hardest thing to get rid of is, is that personal satisfaction of absolutely getting everything out yourself. Well, let's look at this year, then obviously last season in the championship, and this was where you went from being with the factory Aruba Ducati's team onto the Go 11 Ducati. A very different proposition. You go from being the hub, the centre point for a major manufacturer in the championship to then being an independent rider. And that's a big challenge for any rider to have to deal with. But how did you find that was this year? Yeah, to be honest, um, I've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed a different um, a change of scene, just uh, some different different people around me and, and nothing against where I was at all. It's just uh, sometimes you need little things like that to, to you know, change. To, bring enthusiasm back and for me it was um, it was nice to do something different um, I've enjoyed really working with the Go 11 team um, but yeah it's you know when like I said then it's like I could have I could have maybe stepped away a year ago and gone out on the high of, of winning the the last race but there was something you know, itching for me to, to, to have another crack at it and to put myself, I wanted to put myself in a different environment and see how it how it went for me. Um, and I've done that. And we've been a bit unlucky, I think, to be honest. I've had a couple of couple of crashes and picked up some injuries and it's knocked the edge off what was a, quite a strong start to the season. Um, and yeah, I do, I think that, you know, it's not been, it's not been a great season, but it's, it's uh, there's reasons for that and yeah unfortunately it's it's gone the way it's gone but nonetheless I've really enjoyed the working with the Go 11 team yep, see the Mizano crash especially in the shoulder injury from that really yeah. did knock an awful lot of momentum out of it and just when you look at a season like this obviously there's always factors that go into it but do you think is it is it one of those situations where it was better to have tried this year rather than to have any of the doubts in your mind afterwards yeah Definitely, it's a good point, and it is. I think that had I stepped away at the end of last year, if you, I always respect people to step away on a on a high because I think it's the hardest thing to do. Like I remember Nico Rosberg when he won the, won the championship a few years ago. You know, he's going out at the absolute top of his game, but he's mic drop and he's out. And like, fair play because that's not easy to do. Um, and I wasn't able to do it last year, although it, it was on on the cards, but. Um, yeah, maybe I'd be. I don't want to be the bitter racer that says, "Oh, what if I'd have just given it another go?" Oh, I won my last race, so that was, uh, you know, I could have done that. But no, I've I've lined up again. I've given it a good go. It's not gone as good as what I might have hoped it would this year. But I've, there's been other positives out of it. So, um, so yeah, it's uh, it, it's good to have answered the question, and now I can. You know, firmly say that it's now is the right time to to, to retire. Yeah, and obviously, just one last question as well, because this is you know you said in the announcement this is the final season for you in World SBK. Do you see it where there be an opportunity for you still to be involved in racing, whether that's you know still on a bike as a test rider or being involved with manufacturer, or do you think will this actually be you know, the last that we see you, see from you on on a track? Um, well, I don't I don't know really because that's. I would definitely like to try and stay active and ride in, um, ride in you know, competitive 
race bikes, not necessarily racing. For me, it's uh, I'm I'm happy to close that that sort of chapter. But uh, but riding you know good bikes is something that I'd be interested in carrying on doing um, in a less competitive and demanding environment. Um, so yeah, if there was like you said the opportunity to take up a test role of sorts or who knows what else could be available but yeah definitely be uh, you know open here to listen to opportunities um i've not made this decision to to step straight into the next thing and and um yeah it's for me it's if an opportunity comes then obviously listen but at the same time if it doesn't this decision has been made with retirement in mind um you know pro proper retirement but uh, then again after 25 years of doing this it's pretty much all i know and i won't just disappear because it's i, I love racing not just for myself but i love following racing i love you know i watch all the all the classes as much as i can from 300s to the blue crew cup to super sport and super bike it's like you know it's part of me i've always done it and um so for me i don't see myself you know, just disappearing um i'd like to stay actively involved if i can ride then that'd be great and, and not and sort of help in one way or another but you know, maybe there'll be other roles available I, I don't know but yeah we'll just see go step away for a bit disconnect the head and and see if anything pops up but uh yeah, just be grateful for what racing's given me really and all the good the good times um i think it's a pretty stupid really when you think that you you've had so many good times of riding a motorbike round in circles and it's you know, like i said in the press conference at the time when you're a rider in the zone you feel like it's absolute life and death <laughs> this sport the competitive element is is massive and you you'll do anything to, to be a bit better but actually it's you know it's damn good fun at the end of the day and it is just sport as important as it is it's, it is just sport so um no it's it'll be nice to reflect on a lot of good good times in the, in the future you know i'm sure i speak for every superbike fan and all of our listeners jazz and saying well thanks for all the memories that you've been able to give us over the last especially 10 years in the superbike class thank you very much cheers steve obviously we've got the Jerez weekend and then portimao as well so this is the middle weekend of the triple header it's flat out all the way and uh, you've, you've still been on the road all the way yeah I've, I've been on the bike um, I've been doing a lot of riding a lot of working a lot of sleeping uh, occasionally a bit of eating um, and very little else unfortunately I've actually been that busy with various things that I'm doing thankfully it's been very busy this year as a freelancer which is great because um, it hasn't been that much for too many years um, but I've been working all the time I'm driving past places that I'd, oh, I'd love to go there and I can't because I've got somebody to write about. The good thing is, what I'm writing about is exciting. I can't wait to get to the next race, even though I'm half knackered before I get here. But taking a bike was another good idea. It's harder work. It's much more fun. And it's in Spain in the summertime. It's, you know, there are worse ways of making a living, mate, than riding a motorbike from race to race and covering world superbike races. There are many worse ways of making a living. I like the sound of all the work you have to do, Gordo, because that implies you will be able to pay me back that tenor. Uh, yeah, maybe. Maybe. Ah, uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll be on public record. I will pay back the big man sometime. I, I don't think the smile that I have right now is coming clear on the podcast, but it does warm my heart, Gordo, to hear that. As long as it fills your wallet. 
<laughs> uh, well, thanks for joining us as usual on the Superbike Show's Paddockcast podcast, Gordo. And a uh, big thank you to Fly Racing and Rental Street for continuing to sponsor the podcast. And a big thank you to everyone on Patreon as well, patreon.com forward slash Paddockcast podcast. If you want to become a Paddock Insider, check that out for $10 a month. You get the latest news from the MotoGP Paddock all the way through the season. Until next time, the Paddock Pass Podcast, myself, Steve English, Gordon Ritchie, a big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com.